As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host. And this week I am doing an experiment. And it's actually an experiment that succeeded because otherwise you wouldn't be hearing this. And here's what I plan to do for this particular episode. Usually I have some topic prepared or obviously an interviewed guest, but this time I thought, well, what if I started with nothing, with no preparation whatsoever, and just kind of riff, just sort of free form talked about one topic that hopefully will lead to another, which will lead to another. And so that's what I'm going to do this week. So what am I going to talk about? I have no idea at the moment. I'll let you know when I finish. So this is something that is the absolute opposite of what I always learned to do in talk radio. And I first started in talk radio. I was a disc jockey back in the late 70s. And then I got a chance to do a talk show on KABC Radio in Los Angeles. I was on Saturday night from 8 to 10. And it was basically a... Uh, kind of an entertainment-oriented program. Didn't get uh, an awful lot of sponsors Saturday night, but I would try to get guests. And one time, I got Sid Caesar. Now, for those of you who are younger, the name probably means nothing, but Sid Caesar in the 50s was huge. He had his own... 90-minute live Saturday night show, kind of like Saturday Night Live, but it was on prime time back in the days when there were only three networks, and he was probably getting 40 million people a week to watch his program. He is a legendary figure, an icon in television. He's in all kinds of halls of fame, and if you don't know about Sid Caesar, um, I suggest you go on YouTube and look him up. His writing staff, by the way, included Larry Gelbart, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Neil Simon, <laughs> Carl Reiner, on and on and on, other great comedy writers whose names you're necessarily not familiar with, but still, uh, it was a huge program. So anyway, I got Sid Caesar to be my guest live and he was even going to come down to the station. He was even going to drive down to KABC in the shitty part of town, La Cienega Boulevard near Baldwin Park. And, and he arrives. What I didn't know is that he was kind of going through a rough drinking period and he was very surly then. So he comes to the station, and you could just tell. He's just like... <laughs> so we go on the air, and immediately he starts beating up on me. 
ah, comedy today, and ah, what do you know? And blah, blah, blah. and people start calling, wanting to say, oh, I loved you so much on the Sid Caesar show of shows. And he was like, ah, yeah, yeah, it should have been a bad, ah, what do you know? Eventually, so he, he's like yelling at all these people, and so the phone stopped. <laughs> the phone just died because no one wanted to call and uh, get crushed by Sid Caesar. So now it's just me. And like I said, I did not have an awful lot of commercials on uh, an 8 to 10 Saturday night shift. So it's basically just me asking him questions about this and that. And he just like hammered me and beat the crap out of me. And it was this horrible, horrible hour. So the next day, I call a friend of mine who was a major talk show host in San Francisco. His name is Ron Owens, and he was on KGO in San Francisco for many, many, many years. So I'm telling him the story and, you know, my tales of woe and how mean he was to me and everything. And Ron just listened. And when I got finished, he said, it's your fault. And I went, what? What do you mean it's my fault? He said, it's your program. Here's what you should have done when you saw very quickly that it was going to go south. Just say, okay, well, we'll be back in a minute. Our guest has been Sid Caesar. Thanks so much, Sid. Back after this. And then he's gone. He's gone in 10 minutes. And I said, well, yeah, but he drove all the way over here and he is Sid Caesar. And he says, so what? It's your show. You have to be in control of your show. And he said, never go on the air unless you have reams of material that you can talk about. Okay? So don't ever go on the air without being able to just blow off a guest and then come back and talk about this story in the news or that thing that happened to you or whatever. So that's the point I learned about preparation on talk radio from Ron Owens. By the way, I would go up to San Francisco and he used to have a feature on his show for a while he was on in the evenings. And like Friday nights, he would do 60s trivia where people would call and come up with a song title and he would have to come up with the name of the artist or they'd say the artist and he would have to name a song. And and I would come on with him because... I have this stupid, useless, encyclopedic <laughs> skill uh, of remembering artists and song titles and record labels from like the late 50s to the late 70s. And some of that is as a result of the fact that for a number of years, I worked in a record store. I worked at Wallach's Music City. First of all, you say record stores now, and I'm sure a lot of people are going, record stores? What are those? Those are actual stores that sold vinyl records. That's the way we got our music back in the Pleistocene era. But I worked at one of the big record stores, Wallach's Music City. It was a chain. Their main outlet was at Sunset and Vine, and they had branches in West Covina and Norwalk or Lakewood, I don't know, and then the Topanga Plaza in Woodland Hills, which is where I worked. And the big thing there was they had listening booths. They were the only record store that 
provided this. So you could take an album and you could go into this little glass cubicle and you could play it. So that's pretty cool. That's a good way of killing an afternoon, right? You just go to the record store, you get three, four albums, you go and you, you sit in a listening booth and just listen to music. And the listening booths served as our storefront window in the Topanga Plaza Mall. Now, Neil Young used to come in all the time, and I used to throw him out of the listening booth because we had one rule, and that was no smoking marijuana. Like I said, this served as the storefront window. So people are walking by, potential customers are walking by, and there is, you know, some stoner, uh, (laughs) you know, in the booth listening to his own Buffalo Springfield album, probably. And so I would throw him out. Another story about uh, Wallach's Music City. We went through a number of managers, and we had a, a night manager named Nicky Sullivan. He was this tall guy, wore glasses, had his hair in kind of a pompadour. And I always wondered, where do these guys come from? What kind of jobs did they have before this? And so one night at closing, I asked Nicky Sullivan, so what you used to do before this? He said, uh, yeah, I, was, I was in a group. And I said, okay, which group? And he goes, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. I said, oh, fuck you. Come on, Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And he said, here, follow me. So we go down to the bin and find the Buddy Holly album, and we pull it out, and son of a bitch, <laughs> there he is. There he is. Nick Sullivan was actually a member of the Crickets. And then he was working at Wallach's Music City. And Neil Young wound up having a much greater career. I, by the way, did not really like Neil Young at all. Um, He went out with and dumped this girl that I really liked. Again, he was with Buffalo Springfield then, and I'm sure he figured, well, I could just have a different girl every night, and he could. But this was a girl who I really liked, and I only went out with her one time. This was uh, a mistake on my part. This would be like 1966, I believe, something like that. And um, I took her to see To Kill a Mockingbird, a movie with Gregory Peck. Not a great date movie, especially on a first date. Because, you know, guys are always trying on those first dates to, like, make the first move to, you know, drape your arm around them. So you're kind of looking for the right moment in the movie to do that. Where in the rape trial is the most opportune moment to put your arm around somebody? Yeah, that date did not go very well at all. And speaking of To Kill a Mockingbird, I got a chance to see the live version, the Aaron Sorkin version, a few weeks ago when I was in New York. It was great. It really was great. It's like two and a half hours, but it is riveting. And I saw with Ed Harris. Originally it was Jeff Daniels and then replaced by Ed Harris. And Ed Harris leaving in 
April to be replaced by Greg Kinnear. Now, I don't know. Greg Kinnear might be great. Greg Kinnear might be unbelievable in the part. But Greg Kinnear starring in To Kill a Mockingbird in basically the same part that Gregory Peck had in the movie sounds like a room joke. It sounds like the kind of joke that you would make in a writer's room. Here's To Kill a Mockingbird with Greg Kinnear and Ryan Seacrest. (laughs) Well, Ed Harris was amazing. And people who read my blog know that I'm a huge fan of Aaron Sorkin. And the one complaint that people have, and it's usually valid, but the one complaint that they normally have is that all of his characters sound the same. They don't in To Kill a Mockingbird because he generally writes these highly intelligent, very verbal, upscale people. Well, he's got all of these crackers you know, from the South in To Kill a Mockingbird, and I thought he did a, a, a great job. Sorkin, by the way, was a guest blogger on my blog a number of years ago, back when The Social Network came out. I had done a review on The Social Network, which I praised, and one of the comments from one of the readers took issue with the way he treated women in the movie. So Aaron wrote me and said, do you mind if I respond to that? I'm like, no, go ahead, sure. So he did. He wrote a guest column. And (laughs) a few days later, he was on CNN. He was on some show on CNN. And of course, at the time, he was plugging the movie. And the moderator, I don't even remember who he was, some weekend guy, was saying to him, um, now, this uh, commentary about uh, the women in in the movie, you wrote this for a blog, for some blog? Some Ken Levine blog? Got my name wrong, of course. And uh, as if that was the stupidest thing ever. Why would Aaron Sorkin ever want to just write for my blog? And Aaron Sorkin said, yeah, it's a really good blog and he's a really good writer uh, why not but it, it was as if you know the the CNN reporter said so you decided to tell this story by writing it on chalk on the sidewalk that that's how stupid he thought it was that Aaron would write on my blog. And Aaron, by the way, thank you for defending me and thank you for doing such a nice job on that blog piece. And you can go back through the archives and find it. Uh, I've been on CNN numerous times over the last five, six years because of that decade series that they started, the 60s, 70s, on and on and on. And so for the 70s, I wasn't on the 60s, but for the 70s, they did an episode devoted to television and they were going to do a piece on MASH. So they invited me to come and be one of the talking heads. 
And look, I understand how that process works and I understand how you answer in 10 to 15 second sound bites. And I also understand that when they ask you a question, the best thing to do is to rephrase it. So if they say, why was MASH so successful? A lot of people would just go, well, because it dealt with war and it dealt with humor and da, 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 da. And when they would ask me that question, I would say, well, the reason MASH was so successful is because dot, dot, dot. So anyway, so they used me on the 70s. Great. And then the 80s were cheers and they used me on that. And they used me on the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s and the movie Thing that they just did this year, which was like a whole documentary on the history of American movies. And I'm sprinkled in in all of those episodes as well. People say, so did you get paid for that? No, I did not. But anytime you're watching me on CNN means you ain't seeing Trump. And the other great thing about that is it certainly gives me more exposure. For some reason, they would like do a whole thing on the 70s and it would be like a eight, nine part series. So it would be uh, one week the Vietnam War and the next week the Watergate trial and the next week pop culture and music and the next week television, that sort of thing. Um, technology, Wall Street or whatever. So the television episodes always did great in the ratings. They just killed way better than any of the others, okay? People don't want to just keep watching Watergate over and over again, but they do want to see television and MASH and the Mary Tyler Moore show in the 70s and All in the Family and that sort of thing. So the television episodes do extremely well. So CNN on the weekends, at night, and certainly during the holiday season, would just fill their airwaves with reruns of these shows. And I was constantly getting emails from people and texts from people saying, hey, I just saw you on CNN. It was the 80s or the 90s or 70s or something like that. And like I said, when you're seeing me, you ain't seeing him. And I was fine with doing the television series because I was, you know, a contemporary with all of the other talking heads and they'd use Stephen Bochco or Bob Newhart or writers from other shows, Phil Rosenthal or whoever. It's like, you know, okay, I'm, you know, colleagues, I'm contemporaries. Um, I have just as much right to be on this as some of them. But for the movie series, you see Scorsese and Steven Spielberg and then me. And I'm thinking to myself, what the hell am I doing here? Now, yes, my partner David Isaacs and I have written movies. We wrote a Tom Hanks movie, Volunteers, and we were involved in Mannequin and rewriting Jewel of the Nile and a number of other things. So we did have a feature career. It's not like 
you know, they they pulled me out of line uh, at the AMC when I was going to see something on a Saturday night. So I did have a certain amount of credibility, but not compared to Martin Scorsese talking about films or Michael Mann talking about films or Steven Spielberg or even that Tom Hanks guy. The other time that I was on television was when I hosted the Neil Simon Film Festival on Turner Classic Movies a few years ago. And this came about because I wrote an appreciation piece about Neil Simon in my blog one day. And I get a call from Turner Classic Movies. They had read it and thought, oh, this guy would be really good. They would have this series, I don't know if they still do, called Friday Night Spotlight. And for a month, they would highlight either film noir or screwball comedies. They would pick some topic that they could show like three movies every Friday night for a month. So they figured, okay, let's do a Neil Simon film festival. He certainly has the body of work. And they're looking for somebody to host it and they figured i guess okay well number one this guy really loves neil simon and number two he has a broadcast background so why don't we get him so they called me to do it and i said sure now i sort of knew neil simon sort of knew neil simon because we worked out together at the same gym there was a gym in Brentwood. I still go out to that gym, but uh, for a time, and this was, we're talking like 20 years ago, uh, Neil Simon used to work out there. And we would just, you know, hello, how are you? Not really talk. Well, he was casting a play in Los Angeles. And one of the actors from my series, Almost Perfect, Matt Lesher, was up for a role. And I guess I had talked to Matt and had mentioned that I see Neil Simon every week at the gym. And Matt said, would you put in a good word for me? And I said, yeah, I'd be honored to. So that next week when I saw Neil Simon, I approached him and I explained who I was and I'm a showrunner, et cetera, et cetera. And I know that he's considering Matthew Lesher for part in his play He's great. He can do anything. He can do comedy. He can do drama. He's easy to work with. He can sing. He can dance. He's the real deal. Well, the cast Matt. And sure enough, he was terrific. And a couple of weeks after that encounter with Neil Simon, Neil came up to me at the gym and thanked me, said, great suggestion. He is fantastic. So after that, Uh, we weren't BFFs, but I'd say hello to him. He'd say hello to me. How you doing? That kind of thing. Just a little charming chit chat. So in a way, I kind of knew Neil Simon. But when they actually aired the series, I'm thinking to myself, now this was years after our time together in the gym. And I'm thinking, well, Neil Simon was still alive then and probably somebody told him about the film festival. So he sat down to watch and he might have been curious as to who was going to host it. And I just picture him turning it on and seeing me 
and going, the schmuck from the gym? Seriously? That's the best they could do? Was the schmuck from the gym? Well, I I thought it actually came out okay. (laughs) I had to fly to Atlanta to do it. And it was the first time that I'd ever read off of uh, a teleprompter. Now, I had written the intros and outros myself, so I was familiar, of course, with what I was going to be saying. And the teleprompter is attached to the front of the camera. So as you stare into the camera, you are reading the teleprompter. And the woman they had who was manning the teleprompter, you know, just kind of moving it to your speed was fantastic. You know, she wouldn't get ahead of you. She wouldn't go too slow. She really kind of followed your rhythm. So it was first class all the way. And they put me on the set and they put me in my spot. And I'm looking up at the camera and I'm going, okay, I can read that. Okay, that's fine. I should be great. So then they said, now, here's what we're going to do to start each segment. We're going to have the camera pull way back, and it's on a crane, and then it is going to slowly swoop down into a close-up of you. And I thought, okay, fine, whatever. And they did, except as the camera pulled way back to its first position, the teleprompter was on the front of the camera. So now, when it's at the top of the crane, the teleprompter is a postage stamp. I mean, I'm like squinting. It would be like, uh, hi, I'm uh, Ken, uh, I think that's an L. Uh, So what I had to do was basically ad lib when it started and hope to just kind of get back in once the camera got close enough that I could actually read it. And that took some doing. They actually said I picked up the teleprompter pretty quickly. I said, you ever had anybody who just couldn't do it? And he said, Matthew Broderick. And I think his intros and outros are still on YouTube. If so, check some of them out. He just... It was like a deer caught in headlights that there is a skill to it. And I'm sure if I did it every day for a couple of weeks, I would get to be like Ben Mankiewicz and it would be like nothing. But uh, yeah, there is definitely a learning curve. When they approached me, they said, what movies do you want? And they gave me like a long list, way more than 12. And I'm going through, and, you know, there's certain ones that, like, no, this was not his best work. But I noticed that Heartbreak Kid was not on the list. So I said, what about Heartbreak Kid? And they said, what's Heartbreak Kid? (laughs) They'd never heard of it. And it was a movie that he wrote. It was from uh, a book by Bruce J. Friedman, and it was directed by Elaine May, starred Charles Grodin and Elaine May's daughter, Jeannie Berlin, who was nominated for an Academy Award. Also, Sybil Shepard was in that movie. And it's my favorite Neil Simon movie. And it's very, 
unlike any other Neil Simon movie, it's not just a series of zingers and one-liners. It's very character-driven and it's very dark. A lot of people love it. A lot of people just hate it. Anyway, they went out and got it for me and they showed it and they said this was the first time that that movie had ever been seen on TCM. I see a lot of really cool celebrities at the gym, not to be a name dropper, but I will say this, Jennifer Garner is a sweetheart. Kate Beckinsale, hmm, just kind of stay away. For a while, this was a number of years ago, on Sunday mornings, Alec Baldwin would come to the gym. And he's kind of bipolar and he has these tantrums that he pulls from time to time. But basically, when he's in a good mood, he's fantastic. And he will do any of his impressions for you. You know, you just go, do Tony Bennett, do Tony, do Sweaty Meats, whatever. He was he was great. And that's kind of fun when, you know, I'm on the treadmill. There's one time I was on the treadmill between Cindy Crawford and Alec Baldwin. Okay, I think we've pretty much killed a half hour. This worked. This worked. Uh, I think you'll have to tell me, you know, my email address is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That's hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. A reader emailed me recently and said, you know, you list these names of people at the end of your broadcast that you thank. And we'd kind of like to know, well, who are they? What have they done? Like, why are you saluting them? So I thought today, why not? I always talk about Adam and Susie Meister Butler. Well, they're a, a married couple and it's their company that hosts this podcast. The reason I'm doing a podcast is because Susie who is a a friend of mine, and if the name sounds familiar, she's been a guest here on this podcast, and she was also a reality star on MTV, but she's the one who first suggested you should do a podcast. And I said, yeah, I'd love to do a podcast, but I'm technically an idiot. I, I wouldn't know how to do it. And she said, we'll help you. And they've done a great job. And Look, I'm in my fourth year now. Also, I thank Howard Hoffman. And Howard was responsible for the graphics that you see, the Hollywood and Levine logo. Also, putting together the music for the beginning of the podcast and also some of the bumper music. And yes, people go, that theme sounds kind of familiar. Yeah, if you're from radio... My theme is the old 93KHJ theme from the 60s because it was my all-time favorite radio station, and so that's the theme that I use. John Wolfert is also thanked, and John Wolfert is the president of the biggest jingle company in America called Jam. And when I started my podcast, he said, hey, you want some jingles? And I said, yeah, how much? And he goes, tell you what, make you a couple for free. And I said, okay, then I'm going to fly to Dallas to see the session. 
and I will take you and your wife out to a great dinner. And that was really fun. We, we did that. And um, so the Hollywood and Levine jingle that you hear is from Jam. Bruce and Jason Miller are also musicians. Bruce had been a guest on this podcast as well. He did the music for Frasier and Becker and any number of shows. And he and his son Jason put together all the instrumental bumpers that you hear normally on the podcast. But you're not hearing any on this one because I'm not breaking up the podcast at all. So uh, those are the people that I thank from week to week. Let's see. You can follow me on Twitter at Ken Levine, also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. Again, if you want to email me, I would love your thoughts on this particular episode uh, because seriously, when I launched into it over half an hour ago, I had no idea what I was going to talk about other than the Sid Caesar story. That's the only thing I had going in. So Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com, Hollywood Levine at Outlook.com. I could use a five-star review who couldn't, and I will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. And here's that jingle. Hollywood and